Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And welcome back to another episode of What the Politics. I'm Emily and Victoria is here with me as well. And today we're talking about something that is headline in national news over the past week. President Biden has announced that he is withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. So about 2,500 American soldiers will be coming home over the next year leading up to September 11th. Of course, this is the 20th year, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this year. So our president is hoping to pull all troops out of Afghanistan by that anniversary date. So today we wanted to bring on a political scientist, Dr. Andrew Taylor, and he's going to talk with us about American wars, about the Afghan war, and what led up to it? What's the aftermath of this? And how do these wars come about? Why does America get involved? So without further ado, I'm going to let our special guest introduce himself. Yes, uh, my name is Andrew Taylor, and I'm a professor of political science at NC State in Raleigh, where I've taught for now more years than I care to remember. I think it's 26. Um, and I teach courses uh, mainly in American politics, uh, presidency, Congress, political economy, public policy, which is where I do a lot of my research and writing as well. Um, and uh, as listeners might be able to guess, I'm not originally from North <laughs> Carolina. Um, I'm from the UK originally, although I've spent what is basically half my life now in North Carolina and quite a lot more than half my life in the U.S. Wow. So, amazing. yeah, that's me. Awesome. And we also like to ask a personality question as well, again, just to kind of give our audience a little bit more about who you are. So my personality question for you is, where did you live in the U.K.? And, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, the experience growing up there. Well, I was born and lived um, my first half of my life, all of my first half of my life, except for when I went to college in a town called Reading, which is about 40 miles from London. Uh, for the listeners who watched the funeral of Prince Philip at Windsor Castle in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle the other day, uh, very close to there. In fact, I've been to Windsor more times than I care to remember. Um, so it's in sort of south southeast England. Um, I went to college in Canterbury, which listeners might also know a little bit about because they mm -hmm. might have heard of the Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, or um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Um, Canterbury Cathedral is there, which is home of the Church of England. Uh, so um, yeah, and this was in the in the in the sixties, seventies, um, early eighties, and um, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was. I was just a sort of ordinary kid, uh, interested in, got interested in politics, got very interested in the United States, and um, came to the United States a few times, um, traveling when I was younger, and then came here to graduate school and 
the rest is history, I guess they say. <laughs> That's awesome. And how did you get, you know, fascinated and interested in, in American politics? Because obviously, you know, um, politics over in the UK are, are completely different, the complete other side of the aisle. So what interested you about American politics specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think it was more a in, broader interest in the United States than a broader interest in politics mm. that made me think, well, American politics should be interesting. Um, and when, so when I was a kid, I uh, used to get the newspaper and most of my friends would you know, be interested in the comics or the sports pages. Uh, and I'd be interested in, in the political pages. Uh, and uh, election night was always a great treat for me watching the returns come in and thinking a little bit about um you know which which parties were winning which seats and which party would would form the government um and then i got interested in the united states as i said and really my kind of first memories of of us politics uh would be i think watergate mm-hmm. um and the uh drama surrounding watergate um, and then particularly interested it during the 1980s, during the Reagan years. Uh, that's when I when I really got interested in, in American politics. All right. So obviously one of the biggest things going on right now in national headlines is last week, Biden, you know, President Biden announced that he's going to withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan. Now that's you know, about 2,500 U.S. American soldiers that will be coming home, um, you know, hopefully by September 11th, which is his his planned date. So how big of a deal is this? I mean, we've been in this Afghan um, Afghanistan war for years and years. So how big of a deal is this step that President Biden is taking right now? Yeah, it will be exactly 20 years um, to the day from the 9-11 attacks, which, of course, um, motivated the uh, initially the invasion or really air attack on Afghanistan and then the um, troop invasion to get rid of uh, the Taliban that was the government in Afghanistan at the time of 9-11 and of course it was shielding Osama bin Laden and, and his Al-Qaeda terrorist organization. Um, they, they were gone by December um, but uh, actually the U.S. troop buildup grew after December 2001, <clears throat> and um, right through, uh, really, um, to its peak in 2009, we, we tend to forget about this, that we think that the largest number of U.S. troops were in Afghanistan, presumably in 2001 and 2002, um, sort of initially getting rid of the Taliban, as I said, and then chasing al-Qaeda in the uh, um, mountainous area in the northern part of the country, um, famous Battle of Tora Bora, for example, was in 2002. Uh, but actually, uh, the troop numbers increased mm. because, as you might remember, we had uh, a horrific time with security in Afghanistan, um, uh, just as we did in Iraq, really stabilizing the country um, after the Taliban were removed and, and trying to help the um government at the time then of Hamid Karzai get itself stable and, and and have some security. And in fact, the height of the U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan comes uh, all the way into 2009, when, of course, President Obama was in the White House. 
um, and he raised the troop levels to, to just north of 50,000 U.S. troop levels um, in an effort to create uh, security and, and um, respond to political instability, um, uh, protect, for example, free elections and, and the government, which was continually getting attacked uh, as people were, ordinary civilians were, by the Taliban. Um, so that's really interesting because we, I think we think it was at the most troops at the beginning and then slowly we've seen an, a re- reduction over time. But no, the height was in, was in 2009 under, under President Obama. President Obama then became interested in a drawdown uh, in, the, in his second term. And um, he started really moving in that direction by by 2013. Uh, that he tried to get agreements with the Afghans. In fact, at the beginning, the Afghans were very, very reluctant to have the U.S. leave the Afghan government because the Taliban was still strong, um, and, um, and and the um, country was still unstable. Of course, 2012, 2013, after the uh, Killing of Osama bin Laden, who who we got in May of 2011. People might remember mm-hmm. trying to keep your timeline in in your head. This is before the 2012 election, and and but the killing of bin Laden didn't stop the instability, as I said. And so it's not until a couple of years after that Obama talks about real drawdowns. Can't get an agreement with the Afghan government. They're still concerned about security arrangements and stability. Um, President Trump comes in and he actually increases initially the U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan in 2017 up to about 15,000. But uh, under pressure from um, both uh, U.S. uh, politicians who want us to end this and with the Afghan government feeling more comfortable and actually getting the outlines of a peace agreement with the Taliban, um, Trump himself starts moving towards um, full withdrawal. And of course, as you just mentioned, President Biden has now said we will be completely out by September 11th, 2021. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call this a critique, but one of the things about um one of the drawbacks or one of the reasons why some people say that they're hesitant, actually, let, let me rephrase the question, sorry. So one of the um, major reasons why people are saying that the, uh, America wants to stay in these wars is because it in some way helps the economy. Would you agree with that sentiment or would you disagree with that? Well, I don't see how the Afghan presence can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Afghanistan is is a is a poor country. It's a country that um, really doesn't have the kinds of natural resources um, that, for example, Iraq has. And that you know that kind of criticism was labelled at the U.S. Uh, war in in Iraq uh, and the invasion um, in, in 2003 and the occupation afterwards. Many people criticised that as being uh, economically driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Afghanistan is, a, I think, a, 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 diff, a different proposition. It doesn't have that kind of wealth. Um, it also has, of course, a, uh, a history of, of political instability um, and a, a political a, a history of um, 
occupying powers having uh, heartache and pain from being there. So you can go back to the British um, in the 19th century and you can go to the Soviets, of course. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan as sort of part of the broader Cold War strategy um, in 1979 and they met with nothing but heartache. Um, and of course, this led to the um, rise of, of Al- uh, Osama bin Laden, who'd been a supporter of and and worked with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which were the the group uh, trying to get the Soviets out of there in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, I think really the motivation uh, has been one of political security and uh, anti-terrorism and trying to maintain some stability in a part of the world uh, that historically has been been a tinderbox. Um, I I don't think... You can really make a, a strong argument that the rationale for the U.S. presence in Afghanistan has been economic. Mm-hmm. And do you believe that um, since we're withdrawing troops, would you consider America as losing the war, or how would this? Um, how would America's? Because there's also kind of like this um, idea that America's never lost a war, or or only because uh, even with I, I believe it was the v- Vietnam War where where we withdrew troops as well. And it's yes. it's not necessarily... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, Vietnam's com- completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vietnam's completely different. I mean, I think, you know, if you're, if you're trying to um, simplistically work out whether uh, we, were, we won a war or we lost a war, mm-hmm. uh, and, of course, not all wars have really sort of definitive endings... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and technically under the Constitution, this isn't a war. The uh, U.S. Congress declares war in the Constitution. Congress hasn't declared war on belligerent country uh, since uh, World War II, beginning of World War, or U.S. entry into oh. World War II in 1941, 1942. Mm-hmm. But, but we call them wars. We do call them wars. People have called the Afghanistan the longest war. But I mean, I think if you're talking about we need to, we need to put a, a one lost label on them. Uh, we can't we can't talk about ties or draws. We got to talk about wins and losses. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me as though Vietnam would be much more likely to be a loss than Afghanistan. And the principal reason we went into Afghanistan was in response to 9/11. Um, and the initial objective was to overthrow the Taliban government, which was done in quick order. It was done by the end of 2001. And 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 before we really had any troops there, it was largely done by. Um, air attack and support by Afghan forces on the ground. Um, and then the, presumably the next objective, and, and this is one of the problems, right, because people say, what were the objectives? But I think it was clear another objective was retribution and, and to get um, uh, al-Qaeda uh, and al-Qaeda people who helped plan and um, particularly the leaders of the, the 9-11 attacks um, the most obvious one of those, of course, was Osama bin Laden, and he was in. Af- it, it turns out he was actually ended up being in Pakistan, but he was uh, near the Afghan border, and, and a lot of his helpers and Al Qaeda were in Afghanistan, and we and we wiped them out. Um, and then the goal was, presumably, again, the third objective was to create an Afghanistan that was stable, and in which you would not have. A repeat of the events of the of the late 1990s, leading up to 2001. Um, I think that one's a little less clear <laughs> whether we've done that, and obviously only time will tell. But I think if you add those up, you would say, did we lose the war? I'm, 
I don't know if we lost the war. Um, whether we, I don't know if we won it definitively either, but I don't think it would be fair to say that it was lost. Something I want to talk about is, um, you know, people who are critics of, of war, um, you know, one of their biggest, I guess, things that they'll say is, you know, obviously America is um, a superpower of the world, but a lot of people critiquing wars, you know, would say, well, yes, we're a superpower, but why, you know, is it our responsibility or why is it our job to get involved with other countries' um, strifes and issues? Um, so what would you say to, to those critiques? Yeah, well, obviously Afghanistan uh, and, and the invasion of Afghanistan was pretty close to U.S. interests. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, presidents, not just President Bush, but his successors, Uh, would say that it was a a response to a direct and harmful attack on U.S. citizens and U.S. Mm -hmm. interests. 3,000 people died, the World Trade Centers uh, and the the Pentagon and on the planes uh, on 9-11. And this was a retaliation or a defensive um, mechanism. But there are, of course... um, U.S. military actions that are less easy to link to clear U.S. interests uh, and response and defensive um, responses to a provoca- pro- provocation and attack. Um, and so, you know, uh, the obvious one major action in the past 20 years would be Iraq, which was, uh, I think, always seen by the American people as sort of a little bit less legitimate than uh, the Afghanistan operation was. Um, There have been, you know, other cases when we've used um, military power, um, including, for example, um, in Libya, uh, in Syria and other parts of the Middle East. Um, And so those become a little bit more difficult for uh, presidents to defend because the American people don't see as clearer an interest in those than they, than they did in than they did in Afghanistan, for example, and it becomes harder to make those cases. It, it, U.S. Uh, public opinion tends to be it fluctuates a bit, but tends to be sort of uh, isolationist and very dubious of military excursions ab- abroad and convincing them sometimes that these things are, are important uh, is difficult. And there's no doubt about it. And, and and I think you have to, if you're a president doing these things, make it clear that um, U.S. interests are in, are intricately involved here. And, and this is, you know, we, we like to think historically that we've had um, a, that we are not self-interested, that we're altruistic, that we're interested in making the world, um, you know, to, to use phrases from presidents like Woodrow Wilson, safe for democracy, you know, that, that, that we're, we're interested in human rights and we're interested in people having um, free uh, and prosperous lives. Uh, but the American people tend to be a bit skeptical of U.S. operations, uh, designed to do that, and they really want to hear that this is this is important to core U.S. interests before they're willing to give their their support. Mm-hmm. And 
these U.S. interests seem to have a lot of ideals, democracy and freedom and, and providing people with the same freedoms that we Americans have. But how do you think where we do where we do have troops that those citizens feel about uh, why we're there? What is like the general kind of feeling towards American troops in, in places like Afghanistan? Well, as I said, Afghanistan, in many ways, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan probably would have been quicker if mm-hmm. it was just up to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the Afghans have been very supportive. U- U.S. troops, of course, are uh, in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and the places where, you know, some of these operations are actually pretty clandestine and uh, and small in number. Um, there have been U.S. troops involved in operations, for example, in Africa um, against uh, terrorist organizations um, such as uh, the various iterations of, of Al-Qaeda um, and, and Islamic State, for example, um, in places like, uh, as I said, Syria and, and, and um, uh, Somalia and places like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where we have our largest and most public troop presence are vestiges still of the, of the World War II and the Cold War. So in places like uh, South, South Korea, um, of course, uh, Japan and, and Germany. Um, and, you know, to a large extent, they've been there for such a long time that they're almost part of the fabric mm-hmm. of the lives of those countries. Uh, they do, there are on occasions, and, and there are many people in those countries who believe it's uh, kind of antiquated and strange that the U.S. should still have military presence there. But um, for the most part, it's sort of almost normal. Uh, but presumably at some stage that will, that will end. In fact, President Trump, much more so than I think President Biden will be, and certainly President Obama was, uh, started to think about bringing them home and started to question uh, institutions like NATO and the American uh, the American contributions to NATO and the contributions of allies that they were too small, that we were paying too much. And here's an example of what we're paying too much. We've got the, all these troops in places like Germany and Japan. So um, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting, interesting question. And I think with regards to the, the public's view, the foreign public's view of, of U.S. troop presence, it really depends on where you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And um, so when it comes to the troops are an example of, uh, in my opinion, of, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, on foreign interference. Are there any other examples that you can provide of foreign interference besides us being located in all these different locations? Well, obviously, the U.S. is a, an economic and cultural superpower. And um, they're at one end of the spectrum here is what we might consider pretty benign uh, and uh, probably a positive thing in, uh, you know, transmission of of um, wealth and, and, and what was generally called by international relations scholars soft power. So here we're talking about the language, which English, the reason why English is the international language isn't because of Britain, it's because of the United States. Um, and, of course, U.S. Uh, economic power, U.S. corporations are everywhere. Everybody's on, on Facebook and Twitter. Everybody eats at McDonald's. Right? <laughs> this, this is a, 
uh, expansion of U.S. cultural power. That also comes through Hollywood, uh, most obviously as well, but um, other types of, of U.S. cultural exports, such as uh, our sports as well and, and, and popular music. So that, that's at one end of the spectrum of, of how much the United States influences the everyday lives of people who live in other, in other parts of the world. Uh, but there are others, of course, um, you know, I just, I, I talked about technology companies. Um, there is a, a real concern, of course, in, as we move forward here as to, uh, uh, the future security of, of, um, technology and cyber security and the capabilities of different countries and rogue organizations and private entities to be able to hack into and destroy or steal sensitive data from networks, whether they be private companies or universities or hospitals or governments including, of course, you know, intelligence information from intelligence agencies. So we're very concerned about that, and we're doing it to others as well at the same time. So that's another form of the intervention or interference, as you called it, that we, that we don't see, and that is not clearly or not directly military. So, there's, you know, the world's a very interconnected place, and the U.S. continues to have important interests across the globe, even you know, twenty odd years past the Cold War and uh, and twenty odd years past nine eleven, uh, and these interests change. The geographical focus of these interests change. You know, it was all about um, the Cold War in Eastern Europe and the Soviets, uh, and then it became all about the Middle East and places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and now, at least geographically, our focus is is shifting again. And I think. It's shifting particularly towards China. Mm-hmm. And with with the evolution of technology, would you consider America entering a cyber war if we're not kind of already in one now? A cyber war? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Um, I, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it depends on... on a cyber war can be uh, really sort of a purely cyber or uh, internet or technology uh, focused event mm. in which it involves um, basically taking out um, or disabling the technological capabilities of an enemy. Mm. Uh, we've done that before. Uh, we've done that. And you've seen that more recently the Israelis do that with on the Iranian nuclear infrastructure. And uh, we've done that. Uh, there in the past with the Stuxnet, um, but we're doing it elsewhere. Or it could, of course, be a companion to a physical, traditional military war as well. So um, military uh, weapon systems, military communications, intelligence gathering, all of these things are highly technical today and rely greatly on technology um, that needs uh, sophisticated but highly protected networks. Do you think we would ever... And, oh, sorry. Go ahead. And, well, and, and, and so, you know, you need to protect those mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a military hot war as well. And, in fact, losing those during a military hot war of the 21st century 
you can have all the, the, the planes and guns and tanks and troops, but if you lose those in a military hot war in the 21st century, um, the, the, the protection of those networks and that information, you're going to lose the hot war. So there's two ways that we can have those kinds of cyber wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was wondering if we would ever, if the U.S. would ever formally enter a cyber war where it's more kind of where the main focus really isn't with the the troops and and being located in a place. It, it, it's 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 entirely possible. It's entirely mm-hmm. possible. I mean, you you wouldn't know it would be a purely cyber war at the time that you entered it. Uh, but you, the the objectives may be purely cyber in scope, and you might be able to end it without ever having, you know, any kind of military confrontation at all. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, the lines are blurring, right? Mm-hmm. And we've we've seen this for a long time now. We, you know, we began the conversation about Afghanistan. We've seen it particularly in Afghanistan, and that is the use of unmanned um, military. Uh, vehicles, devices, mainly, these are mainly uh, aircraft, of course, they're drones, whereby, you know, you basically fight a war uh, from some uh, secure uh, U.S. military location in in the middle of the United States and uh, 8,000 miles away in the Middle East, uh, you are commanding a a drone which has detected an enemy force and, and you push the button from there rather than actually putting your life on the line and, and being out in the field itself. And, of course, this has changed, tremendously changed the nature of war and, and the calculations of risk that political leaders have when they go into war. Um, and that, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, is really going to, I think, alter the, the, our conflicts in the future. Yes, well, th- there'll be geeks at computers hitting each other all over the world with no blood spilled, just killing each other's networks and, and in, infecting each other's um, computers. That will happen. It already is. And, of course, we'll still have the old-fashioned wars. But I think it's going to be something in the middle um, that is is really going to be the nature of warfare going forward. So we are coming up on the um, 30 minute mark, so we don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I have one last question for you, and I think Victoria has uh, one or two as well. So my final question for you is, you know, obviously we have a bunch of troops coming home over the next few months. um, But is there anything going on foreignly that that you see as an issue that could you know, incite American troops to get involved again in, in another war or any other disputes? Well, obviously, there, you know, there's always the unknown. Um, right. But we, I did mention previously that I think the focus of the U.S. is, is changing, um, geographic focus, uh, mm. away from the Middle East where it's been for 20 years. Gotcha. Maybe even longer than 20 years. And I think, you know, obviously China... The, the State Department, new State Department, new uh, Secretary of State, um, Anthony Blinken, uh, 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 has su- suggested that the focus of, of U.S. diplomacy and foreign relations is going to be moved more to, to East Asia mm. to focus on China, which you know sometimes been characterized as anything from an enemy to a friend, strategic rival with something in the middle you know that we we want to deal with them we want to work with them on things like trade and climate change but at the same time we want to 
Uh, we were upset what they're doing, uh, um, their expansive tendencies in the South China Sea, how belligerent they seem to be towards neighbors, their human rights record, uh, their uh, what they do with technology, etc. Um, so the, China, but but a full-on hot war with China doesn't seem uh, on the cards, at least mm-hmm. not in the short or medium term. It might be more of a of a kind of Cold War, like we experienced with the Soviets um, uh, after, you know, this World War II, uh, where we engage in containment, where there are little fires that that, that occur and confrontations that occur, but they're limited in, in scope and it, and it becomes a, a sort of war of, 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 of attrition um, and not military force, but something else. Mm-hmm. Mm. And kind of just bringing it back home, and and um, this will be my last question. But so, kind of a, a personal anecdote. I'm 23. I it seems as if my well, yes, in in my entire life, it seems like America has always been involved in some type of war, and this has been a, um, presidents on both sides of the aisle have been involved in in these types of wars. Do you see this as a um, as one party being more likely to enter a war? Or how, from a from a bipartisan perspective, how are parties and wars? How are they related? How do how do they view these wars? Are they more favorable towards them? Does there seem to be any sort of um, one party more favorable towards entering these kind of conflicts, or is this kind of seem? Yeah, I, I don't I don't think so. It's funny we talk about how partisan our politics are these days and how different the Democrats and Republicans are. This is one thing where, where I don't think you see uh, much of a, much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously Iraq and, um, and nine 11, Afghanistan. And of course the, the first Iraq war, the Gulf war in 1991, those who were under the bushes. So those were Republican presidents, but uh, historically, there's been criticism the Democrats engage, engage in, in more wars. Bob Dole, um, who was, of course, a, a Republican presidential candidate in 1996, um, used to describe the Democrat wars. Uh, he was talking about World War One and World War Two, which were entered into by Democratic presidents. Uh, but but in all of these cases as well, there's an event that is random. Um, you know, 9/11 we've mentioned, of course, World War Two and the invasion and the, and the attack on Pearl Harbor. These things occur, uh, events occur without really worrying about who's president. And U.S. presidents of both political parties, I think, have shown a, a willingness uh, and, and a resolve to protect uh, U.S interests um uh, sometimes at extraordinary costs to to um you know uh, our our people um and 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 often those costs are obviously worthwhile paying particularly as you, you know, think about uh, world war 2 so i don't i don't think there really is um in fact what we've tended to see are the war skeptics uh, be on both sides, um, perhaps, you know, on the fringes. We talk about, uh, obviously, the sort of anti-war movement, which was a significant part of the Democratic Party for a long time, saw it particularly in Vietnam, for example, which, again, was another war entered into by a Democratic president. Uh, but uh, we see them stay on the Republican side, particularly on the libertarian end. Um, you know, people like uh, Senator Rand Paul um, from Kentucky. So I, I don't, you know, these things... 
most things in American politics seem to be D or R, red or blue. But this is something that um, isn't. And presidents from both parties have in the past, and I believe will do in the future, and and congressional majorities in the future, as in the past, both parties will will um, enter into war and, and and refuse to enter into wars, depending upon the circumstances. Mm. Well, thank you so thank you so much for um, for taking the time to speak with us today. This has been. A top of topic of interest for for Emily and I, and and we are so grateful to have you with us today. Uh, happy to do it. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of What the Politics. You can find us on Apple and Spotify, and of course at wnct.com in the features tab. All right, everyone, we'll see you next week.